world, we got this. The podcast talking big global challenges with the experts taking them on. Brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. Hello and welcome to the podcast. If this is your first time listening, I should say this is part two of a two-part episode entitled Racism is a Health Risk. In part one, we spoke with Professor Ann Pollock and Dr Melissa Creary about ongoing health inequalities in the United States. In today's episode, we focus on the UK, as we are joined by two King's alumni, Beauty Delame and Muhammad Ali. They host a podcast titled Mind the Health Gap. The podcast is a source of reliable and accessible, uncensored global health discussions and debates affecting the public and particularly marginalised communities here in the UK. We come on later in the podcast to talk about their work and their experiences in trying to change the conversation around global health. But I started by asking Beauty if COVID-19 has simply highlighted existing health inequalities for black and minority ethnic communities here in the UK. I think a lot of people don't realise just how interlinked the world is, public services are, and how like things are just not happening in silos. So like the social inequalities that persist in society, um, as Sir Michael Mormont put it best, Mohammed, I know you're a fanboy, <laughs> in his book, uh, The Health Gap, he reminds us that health, health inequalities that persist like stem from existing inequalities in society. And so by extension, they are always unjust. Um, and the way we can only, the only way we can really rectify them is by like looking or approaching it through uh, a social justice lens. And racism is very much part of this. So racism is a public health issue for that reason. Um, um, it's a social determinant of health. And the reason I say this is because if you if you consider how society treats black people, you know, we're most likely to have poor housing. We're most likely to have lower paying jobs. We're most likely are likely to live in um, less uh, economically developed or advanced areas. It's no, it's not a surprise. It's sad, but it's not surprised that COVID-19 disproportionately affects us. And it's not just reflected within this pandemic, but any other area of health. If you look at mental health, we have disproportionate prevalence rates, reproductive health, um, really every single area of health uh, very much reflects the standard of living we have throughout society. So to answer your question, yes, this this definitely um, portrays a much wider uh, pattern of inequalities in society. Um, I mean, I agree. And um, it's not a new thing, as in many activists and public health commentators have long spoken about uh, the need to look at structural inequalities. And just in February, it was 10 years on from the famous uh, Marmot Review. And 10 years on from that, um, we've seen that health, health, inequalities, health inequalities appear to have widened. Um, also, life expect, expectancy uh, has stalled. And also just housing, work, income, education, attainment, all of those have stalled at the same rate. And um, it is a discussion that has been had for the last couple of years. And only, I think, COVID-19 has made it a national crisis, I'd say, where members of government are actually being told to look at it 
and they've got no choice essentially because people are actually dying and the media are actually amplifying their voices. Um, whereas before we would have these reports, have these recommendations, but it would not reach the stakeholders that could influence change. I guess, I mean, one of the things I wanted to talk about, we, we, the, the previous episode to this, we sat down and talked about the US and how structural racism is part of what's going on in the US at the moment, whether that's in relation to and, and how that relates to health. So that the killing of George Floyd wasn't disconnected from the impact on BAME communities and African-American communities in terms of COVID. You know, I, I feel like sometimes in the UK and, and particularly around COVID, there's been a kind of suggestion or the way it's been reported, whether it's in the media or whether it's been talked about by government, is that the the COVID is COVID specific, that actually how the health has played out in terms of um, the disproportionate burden on BAME communities is COVID specific. You know, how how much is that part of a wider kind of way in which the UK deals with race, do you think? Is it is quite a defensive position to take a kind of, oh, this is a particular issue here. It's not part of a wider system. Do you think that that kind of defensiveness or willingness to kind of categorize it and, and put it in into, into a, a singular kind of box is, is part of the problem we face here in the UK in terms of dealing with structural racism in relation to health? Um, I mean, that is true. Where, um, a lot of the lenses that people are looking through uh, structural inequalities and racism is just directed to um, issues of say COVID or quite just simplistic um, interpretations. Whereas if you actually look at structural uh, inequalities um, and racism, you'd see that the NHS, our national health system shares um, data with the home office. And that is just one aspect where, people who do not have the right documentation or right um, status of living in the UK cannot attain the health services. Um, and that is just one facet of how it's structurally placed and whereas where doctors are now part of the um, part of the group that enforce um, the home office things, um, legislation, home office legislation, which isn't the role of a doctor or a health professional so a lot of uh, racial a lot of the racial inequalities that we see are enforced by different sectors and institutions within the UK yeah just to, to add to what Mohammed says I think as well it's like going right to like the core of like global health research and knowledge production it's also just it's not so much an outright defense but just in the way like things are constructed, the language that is used in research, they definitely um, perpetuate this racism uh, in a way that it, it makes it seem like, oh no, that's definitely an American problem, but we have nothing to do with it. So I saw a brilliant thread today actually um, on Twitter, yes. <laughs> and uh, it was by the Care Research Center uh, in Boston where they wrote and they said that sometimes when we do like global health research or medical research, um, it excludes uh, communities of color, particularly like black communities, for example, trust, there was a concept of trust between um, researchers and uh, participants within black communities is, uh, is a way that's often used to avoid including them in research. It's a way of saying, oh, you know what, well, we've tried to engage with them, but it, it's just too hard. You know, they don't, they don't trust us. 
And if you consider like the history of racism in medicine, why do you think it is they don't trust you? <laughs> you know. Um, so as Mohammed say, absolutely, um, this defensiveness and failure to fully recognize racism in society transcends and spills over into health. Um, but I also don't think it's it's something that's um, defensive. It's very passive as well. It's there and it's known, but it, it's so it's passively done. That's why it's it's quite implicit in the way that it's done. Beauty. One of the things that you mentioned in our conversation ahead of this ahead of this podcast was that uh, an example of uh, inequalities and uh, kind of institutional racism or bias within within healthcare is around childbirth and the fact that often well in fact black women do uh, disproportionately affected in childbirth in terms of various different uh, indicators I mean is that like a real example of of kind of the outcomes of when we don't tackle racism within healthcare oh absolutely um I know Anne has been doing a lot of work around this uh in a US context, uh, she probably gave an example of uh, Serena Williams and her birth story, but it's very much an issue. And you know, after that came out, a lot of women in the UK actually were like, hang on, we have the same issues. You know, they're like five times more likely to die in childbirth, infant mortality rates and the likes are incredibly high. Um, and I'm so glad you, you've mentioned lived experiences because for ages, black women, and you know in wider context black people have been speaking out about health inequalities and issues to accessing healthcare. um the issue is a lot of our experiences are not validated by evidence-based data uh and that's largely due to a lack of indulging with these communities so i think firstly we need to stop pathologizing um black people in the community and black women in this context and listen to them instead so have research that is led by them, um, that actually includes them and their needs. Um, but I also think it's much wider than that. It, does, it doesn't just stop there because it's, it's actually a systematic issue. There's, and I don't want to completely shift the blame onto us and say like, oh, it's a problem that we should just deal with. Um, we should have the solution because if we're not changing the, the system that we're going into, I don't particularly think that would change health outcomes so like there needs to be a complete restructuring of how we understand is issues affecting black people and it's not just within tip boxing implicit bias trainings or diversity trainings I think for workers and health professionals I think right down to the knowledge production how we understand the differences and in the experience of health for black people and black women um, being exposed to these experiences in their teaching um how, how it's taught who it's taught by being very active about this for change to actually come about um for 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 these things to actually matter and make a difference for for black women but also for black people in other areas of healthcare. um i agree with everything you said and also just uh, to reiterate the use of community uh, mobilizing those in the community um, as well as um, making sure the community is represented. Um, one way of doing that is basically utilizing um, faith-based organizations um, with a lot of people from the BAME background. The, the point of information and contact is through uh, not the usual means, so either through community centers, through churches, or mosques, 
So having partnerships and um, including them when it comes to uh, decision making, I think that is one way of actually um, cultivating and having more people from that background involved in research. And uh, it's, I'd, I'd say it's probably one of the best ways of recruiting people um, to look and explore these lived experiences. And um, also making sure that the research that are done and completed are also are meaningful in a way that it improves health outcomes for those communities. And we go from research to policy enactment. So people know that, okay, the research that my community was, has, able, has been able to give data has been uh, utilised in a good way. So it's improved our health outcomes and it's improved our way of life and we'll be willing to do it again or willing to involve other communities at the same time. I mean, one of the things that we spoke about with Melissa um, and Anne was the fact that actually this, that there's been a building up, whether it's Black Lives Matter or whether it's Roads Must Fall, that these issues around uh, race and racism in both the UK and the US have been bubbling away, particularly, I think, with young people in terms of their push for change. And that actually this moment where COVID has happened, we've had the lockdown. You know, how much do you think that actually COVID and health has been a trigger for wider discussions um, around racism here in the UK in particular? I think COVID, COVID is a catalyst. Um, much As much as we're seeing as well, you know, a lot of the things that have been happening and people are protesting have been happening for many years. And I think it's got to a point where it, these things are now catalyst people have had enough you know um we speak about this Muhammad and I all the time and black people and just communities of color have been suffering for a very long time in this country like an incredibly long time and sometimes it feels like racism is at the core of like the social fabric of this country and I think people are responding to this and where we're in lockdown people aren't working people have a lot more time they actually have have the means to participate like the political participation is there uh, for this large awakening and responding to this and I do think that a lot of things around uh, what has been happening with COVID has really just exposed um, the extent of racism it hasn't exposed the racism just the extent and how um, what's the word I'm looking for just how meaningless black lives feel in this country. You know, we've seen like cases, for example, with uh, Beli Mujinga, the uh, transport worker who was spat at, you know, they, they closed a case. They responded to that really like late, then they closed it and nothing else was said. And then a few days afterwards, the same thing happened to a police officer and there was action taken there. So a lot of people are starting to draw comparisons and be like, but why, why is it one way for one group of people and another? And people are responding to it. Um, so I think, yes, whilst they might be uh, great uh, in, in responding to health, sorry, health inequalities have been great in exposing the extent of it. I don't think they're, they're the only thing. I think it's been brewing for a while, um, but the situation that's been the right and circumstances that people have found them in has given them the political mobilization to actually be like, hang on, we've had enough. We're going to do something about this now. The lockdown has enabled a lot of people to reflect and think deeply about the injustices they face every day. And um, 
just an example is uh, people who who passed away from uh, COVID-19, um, the, their families and relatives could not bury them and come to their funerals. But one of our um, advisors, the government was able to go 300 miles to infect other people as well. So that really frustrates and angers people because a lot of people were not able to actually bury their loved ones or see them yet people some there's rules for some and rules for others and i think that was a tipping point where people realized i think we must stand up to these institutions and actually um basically protest and give our views and basically hold them accountable for these things because um because covid and diseases infectious diseases will come and go but these structural inequalities will stay that's why there's arguments for why are people from the, the Bain background protesting even though the disease is disproportionately affecting them but then I answer to that and say a COVID and other infectious diseases come and go but these structural um, institutions are there and will always be there so now is a good time to actually group and look for reforms ask for accountability and um, push that message and also just gain momentum and support as beauty said coming on to think about the report so the report that the government have produced on um disproportionate level of covid19 deaths amongst the bain community mohammed i saw you tweet about it what you know as a global health uh um student and researcher you know what were your initial thoughts as to that report I think the report was quite basic in the sense that I basically relayed um, all the facts that we know um, that people from being background background have increased mortality uh, in relative to their counterparts, which we've known and other organizations like the Runnymede Trust and all these other uh, race uh, race policy uh, race think tanks have already stated. And we were expecting a much more thorough, um, informative report with recommendations. And they didn't even use key concepts such as structural racism, um, social determinants of health. So it was it was really disappointing, to say the least. Um, it didn't address anything. And also, I think recent, um, I think yesterday, the BBC said um, that they reported, they reported that there wasn't a black figure actually leading or someone from the BAME community leading the report. So, and we were, we were set to believe that it was meant to be someone from the community who was going to actually take leadership and actually um, go through this and look at why black people, uh, black people and ethnic minority groups were facing the greater, greater burden. Yeah. Just to add to what Mohammed said, like the report is not telling us anything new. It's, it's not a rude awakening for anyone who actually reads the news or um, has social media or for anyone who's not black or a person of color, you know, um, it's not a confirmation or even a validation for, for our communities because it doesn't really feel like anything is going to be done. As Mohammed said, um, it just felt like quite a formality. Like, you know, we are acknowledging that this is happening in your communities and that's it. It's very passive action from the government. Um, and I don't feel like it will change anything. I do feel like, however, it has mobilized um, more health scholars, not just within the global health space, but clinicians, um, public health uh, 
professionals, um, many of them who aren't actually uh, from our communities. Um, so I think that that is a good thing, perhaps, um, and maybe has made them a bit more mindful. However, I think it's quite insulting that it took so long for the government to do something about it um, or even have plans to delay releasing it. You know, they didn't want to release it given the political climate. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I don't see anything really coming out of it, especially as Mohammed said, there wasn't really involvement from us. Um, so if we can just imagine for a minute, um that both of you have been handed the keys to number 10 and one of you becomes health secretary. I'm going to let you argue over who gets to be prime minister and who gets to be health secretary. I don't know. Like, I don't know what as global health students, maybe like being health secretary is more exciting than being prime minister. <laughs> but, um, cause one of the things about the report is there weren't recommendations. There weren't real kind of things that we could walk away from and say, this needs to happen. You know, what would beauty, what would your things be that you'd, that you'd instigate on day one? The main import, I'm very much a believer in working with grassroots and communities who've been doing this work for a long time. You know, they are much more aware of their health needs than anyone at the top could ever be. Um, I think you need to work with them uh, because it will inform the research. Um, it will inform the knowledge production, uh, our understandings, maybe our perceptions. And it might influence behavior, behavior change in how we actually work with these communities um i think we should as mohammed said earlier on we should allow these members the members of these respective communities to feel empowered um not just by giving them a voice but by also like giving them tools to imagine imagine a space and a future that is accepting and accommodating of them and their health needs um, so if I was in number 10, I would definitely be health secretary, by the way. I'm not a very diplomatic, so I cannot be prime minister. <laughs> um, but definitely working with these communities um, and grassroots organizations who've also been working with them. And I don't just mean, you know, uh, imposing on them. I mean, actually working with them, letting them lead research, letting them read, uh, lead, sorry. Um, interventions that uh and actually provide them with funding you know uh, a lot of the time we talk about these things but we forget more technical stuff like funding where's money coming from you know that kind of stuff <laughs> yeah Mohammed, you're prime minister so you you know beauty has made you prime minister what what, what would your recommendations be or what would I the default. changes you see <laughs> Um, with me, um, I would also go for just uh, a national strategy for action on the social determinants of health. So understanding uh, diseases within housing, how housing affects that within income. So maybe looking at social security safety nets, having people, because uh, what you're seeing right now with the COVID situation is key workers are those who are from being backgrounds and they have, they can't afford to uh, basically not work and some of them are not entitled to sick pay so having a social security net that now allows as many people as possible to work from home or potentially have a safety net so that they can actually not be at the face of diseases at the face of any burden and that is just for covid but um as well as just for future future uh, recommendations 
social security, so increasing the social security net. Um, early interventions to prevent health inequalities, so potentially um, starting these interventions, these health promotions during school, from uh, embedding it into school curriculums, having school governors enforce this at primary level, school level, um, secondary school, um, and ultimately community involvement. Um, see them If you see them as stakeholders, I think that is a better approach rather than some people that you need to help. Um, so having them on the table when decision-making is happening, um, having representation, uh, re- representation that actually matters, not just for identity politics, uh, representation that actually aims to empower the community that these individuals come from. And um, like you said, funding as well, funding, grassroots levels. So you've seen with our government for the last 10 years, austerity has led to over 200,000 deaths and the closure of um, schools, um, youth, and all this affects health. And um, those people who live in poor housing are more likely to have poor health. Those people who are involved in crime or around crime tend to be from backgrounds with poor health. So basically I'd say a collaboration of methods uh, to basically with the social determinants of health in uh, as the key um, reference point, I'd say would be a good way of addressing this. But ultimately this ties into involving the community and community leaders who know the actual issues within the community. Beauty, I don't want to let you go today without talking about your podcast, Mind the Health Gap. Um, I've been listening back to the episodes uh, before we sat down today. It, it really is fantastic, and I urge everyone to go and go and listen. Um, you and Mohammed are, of course, alumni of King's Global Health and Social Medicine. Um, you're both now doing a master's. Tell us a little bit about the podcast and why you set it up. Uh, sure. Uh, first of all, thank you for having both Mohammed and I on the podcast. Um, just for everyone listening for context, Mohammed and I, and as you mentioned, that Mohammed and I are both alumni at King's. We studied global health and social medicine at undergrad. Um, we've been really good friends since first year. Uh, there were very few people of color on our course, and we just started having like these great conversations regarding global health, ways we could decolonize and create a space to speak on issues largely affecting marginalized communities, Um, not just globally, but locally. As one of our professors used to say, uh, Bronwyn Parry, I don't know if you know her, but she would always say, there's global in the local. And we really took that idea and ran with it. You know, she said that to us in first year, and that's why we really created the podcast. Um, We wanted to speak on issues affecting marginalized groups but also to give platform to academics and students alike within these groups to actually speak on these issues Um, because often you know it's kind of like a study of us not by us Um, so yeah and we've received a really positive response uh, from everyone who listens to us not just friends (laughs) and I guess it's given us momentum to keep going just to reiterate what Beauty said, um, there was a gap of podcasts for people of colour, for people of, of, of colour. So making sure that knowledge production is actually spread equally to those people who are also affected. And um, just looking across before we actually started the podcast, we searched for 
any podcast that actually tackles the issues that we face and also any podcast that has people like us in the driving force, uh, driving seat, as, as I should say. Um, and um, we, there were a limited amount. And uh, so we thought it would be a good idea to actually use our platform, use our resources at these universities to actually speak on issues that matter to us the most. How has that experience been of trying to give a platform to some of these voices and actually change, as you say, the importance of changing how global health is 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 researched and talked about? I mean, um, to start with, it was quite difficult to have people of colour um, in terms of just for them to have a say in our podcast because uh, the pool wasn't as big as we thought. But then as time went and we went to our university, started our master's, we came across like-minded people who wanted to express um, the concerns that they had in terms of their research. And just, um, it was fruitful because we've, we had a lot of people who were similar to us, but the, but never had pl- the platform to actually uh, talk about their interests in terms of global health. And um, we've had also people come up to us and actually approach us. And um, it's, it's traveled our podcast has traveled the long distance and people are willing to come and actually speak uh, and talk about their experiences. One thing that's been really great is when we first started with Mohammed, it was just like, okay, like we're going to talk about these issues, but how do we talk about them? You know, shoot, are we allowed to like, do we have to use academic language? Are we allowed to swear? Are we allowed to do that? How do we speak about these kind of things? And we just went into it being ourselves and quite a lot of young people that look exactly like us, you know, have said to us, you're speaking about something in a way that's accessible to me. And I think that's quite powerful for us because a lot of the time, um, these academic discourses to do with our communities, you know, there's so much jargon to it. There's like, there, there are a lot of, um, how do you say, academic walls. So not just like, in terms of like the journals and accessing them online, but actually like who can participate and understand in these conversations. And Mohammed and I just speak about them like we're talking about, I don't know, a soap. And it really, it really resonates with people and they, they, they understand and it's things that interest them. It's, they're not locked out of the conversation. And I think that, that in itself is important because there are a bunch of things that affect our communities that that we're not even aware of. but they're not accessible to us in the way that academia presents them sometimes. Um, And as Mohammed says, it it was quite hard at first because how, how do we approach people to speak on this, you know, without them feeling like, Oh, it's an attack on other people or um, leaders within the field, but it's been great so far, you know? Um, Yeah. It's, it's been a good experience. Well, look, guys, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Um, I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's just really great to have you on. Um, I know that you've got a new season of the podcast coming up. Tell us a little bit about it, what, what's going to be in it, and maybe who's going to be in it. So, Mohammed and I, we didn't want to be too COVID-focused. We've been sharing a lot of stuff on that. But also, there are a lot of things that have emerged from the lockdown and COVID, and one of them is um, the the presence of addictions Uh, and that's something that Mohammed and I are looking to explore in our next kind of like season (laughs) 
for the podcast, um, especially a lot of addictions affecting young people, which may have been exacerbated by current circumstances or have always been there, but not really touched upon. And for example, this includes like gambling, the rise in vaping, like a lot of things you don't really think about that you see. Um, so that's something we're in the process of um, sorting out. Once again, we're going to have a um, few academics who this falls in line with their research. Um, uh, a few students that look like us uh, will be contributing with commentary. Um, yeah, I think addictions has been on our list for quite some time and mm. it's been exacerbated. Research has, uh, COVID-19 has actually exacerbated the situation and just everything is just so political in the sense that, um, again, betting shops, bookies are also are always placed predominantly in pe- in re- areas where there's a lot of poor people. So right. everything everything is global health. So that's why we've chosen addictions. Uh, it sounds fantastic. And I, I'm looking forward to hearing here in the first episode big thank you to Mohammed and beauty for joining us on the podcast thank you so much for having us thank you and um i thank you for giving us the platform to actually um express the research and um what we're doing and i think this goes a long way of actually uh this is one way of um actually helping the cause and having our voices amplified so that we can actually have more people that are aware of what we're doing A big thank you to Mohammed and Beauty. As I'm sure you'll agree, they were fantastic guests. Please go check out their podcast, Mind the Health Gap. You can find it on iTunes and Spotify. The conversations they are having are so important, not just to the future of global health, but also in terms of wider discussions around society and public policy. You've been listening to the podcast World We Got This, brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. To find out more about the podcast and our work, head to our website, kcl.ac.uk forward slash world we got this. Here you'll find a full list of further reading materials. This podcast has been produced by James Bagley and Julia Stepawoska, with editing by Rachel Wall. To help us reach more people, please rate and review us in iTunes, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, remember, World, we got this.